Hi, I'm Dan Holzman. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 66. I'm still your host until I'm replaced by a self-driving car. In this episode, I have a fantastic guest, all the way from the great white north, comedy juggler and performer extraordinaire, Mr. Bob Cates. Before I talk to Bob, though, let's thank our sponsors. Starting with sponsor number one, the most important sponsor I have, and the only sponsor I have, that's right, the International Jugglers Association. Information about the IJA can be found at juggle.org. Find out all about this year's festival taking place in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'll be there emceeing the competitions and directing two of the shows. And the festival will be directed by the one and only, everyone's favorite juggling historian, Mr. David Kane. Also, don't forget to check out my book, still available at Amazon.com, 1001 Tips on Practicing, Perfecting, and Performing Your Act. Looking to take your act to the next level? Then get this book and start studying up. All right, no more brouhaha, no more preamble. Drop everything and get ready to listen to Mr. Bob Cates. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 66, all the way from Cambridge, Ontario, Mr. Bob Cates. Welcome, Bob. Woo, welcome. (laughs) No, good to be here. I think you're our first Canadian uh, guest. How come we don't associate Canada with with juggling that much? We think about it for comedy, like with uh, Martin Short or Howie Mandel, but I don't really think of many Canadian jugglers. How's the scene out there? Uh, yeah, there are juggling festivals and uh, juggling clubs up here, and uh, I've been a part of them for quite some time, since the uh, early 90s. So we are here, we do exist, but uh, there's not really, I don't know, I guess, I don't, I'm not sure why that would uh, would be the image. I mean, I can think of Robin Chestnut, he's a Canadian, right? Yep, yep, and there's a few others, David Aiken. Oh, right. And uh, John Park moved up here a while ago, so he's an import. Is he in Toronto? Yes. And I'm also thinking of a juggler from back uh, in my day. I think his name was Patrick Hazell. Am I saying that right? Oh, I'm not uh, familiar with him. Yeah, he was back in maybe the 80s. As far as juggling in Canada, is it something that you feel is sort of just, you don't see it that much? There's not that much visibility in Canada? It's not on TV? Or, or why do you think there's so few Canadian jugglers that we know about? Maybe for the work. Um, you know, I'm surprised. I sometimes say I'm surprised I never moved to the States because of the size of the population would allow more work. But you know what? My family is all my family and extended family on both sides. My wife and I are here. I've been able to make a living and uh, never really saw the need to, to move or never had to, so to speak. So I'm just uh, hunkered down for the last 25 years and uh, making it happen. Is it easy for Canadians to come to the United States to work or do you have to have special work permits? It's very difficult. As a matter of fact, it's uh, frustrating sometimes how easy it is for Americans to come here to work. I think at one time it was like pay your hundred bucks at the border and walk in type of thing. But it's very difficult uh, for myself to get a U.S. work visa. Now, I have had one for, I have to renew it every year. It's a big process and expensive. And uh, I'm with a group of performers that we work together with uh, uh, an agent and a manager who kind of puts it all together and we pay him money. And every year it's a, it's a big deal, but you pretty much need to do it because, you know, if a call comes in, uh, you need to be able to say yes. Now, has it gotten more difficult with our current administration? I know obviously it's more difficult to come in from our Southern border. (laughs) But how's it coming across the Canadian border under our, our President Trump? It's not harder. Like, as long as you have that work visa, I don't have any problems whatsoever as far as um, 
being held up or even questions. It may be that I've, I've done it so much. Maybe it's on my record. They see that I come across a fair lot for both pleasure and work. But honesty is the best policy. You do not want to, as a Canadian, you don't even want to think about trying to uh, work under the uh, table, so to speak, without it being all legal. Because you can get banned, banned from the U.S., How, not just for working, but for everything. So, no, you gotta you got to do it right. So if you were to come in and not admit that you were actually coming under contract or coming here to make money, they could then, then exile you from the United States overall? Yep. Okay. That doesn't sound like a good scenario, so... For all our Canadian listeners, and I think there's two of them, maybe, or one or two, <laughs> make sure to always claim your, your full responsibilities under the law before you yep. come into the United States. As you come from an entertainment background, was were your parents involved in show business? What was your early uh, life like in Canada? So absolutely no entertainment background at all. I grew up in a large farm, three well, 300 acres and 1,000 pigs. Whoa. And so I was a complete farm boy. And I don't think I actually ever saw a live juggler before I learned to juggle. So how did I, you know, how did I learn? Well, I, I think I must have seen juggling on TV because I certainly knew what it was. You know, maybe I saw a circus act or something on TV, but I don't recall ever seeing a live juggler. I think uh, I was into um, other things as far as hobbies goes, radio control cars and things as a teenager, but it wasn't until uh, my last year of high school that I learned to juggle. Did you have a lot of chores? Were part of your responsibility somehow taking care of these pigs? or And are you a vegetarian because of this <laughs> pigs, or are you a, a lover of pork? Yeah, yeah, I'm not a vegetarian, uh, and I did have lots of responsibilities. So basically we had... Uh, Two, um, pretty much every night I had about an hour of chores going into the, the barn, dealing with all the animals, feeding and cleaning and stuff. And then uh, also there's the field work. I didn't do the field work as much as my two other brothers. They were more into that. And I kind of got settled with the, the barn work. But yeah, pretty much, uh, again, it's weird that I ever kind of went into performing. So it was the furthest thing for me to be a performer. As a matter of fact, I I kind of wanted to go into business. I always kind of was business-minded, uh, but definitely not farming. So Now, they say that a pig is as intelligent as a dog. Did you find them to be intelligent animals? Uh, yeah, they say that, but <laughs> yeah, we uh, I didn't see too much intelligence. <laughs> now, it says you studied uh, Bachelor of Commerce. Was that because of your interest in business? That was McCaster University? McMaster. Yeah, um, McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, was a Bachelor of Commerce there. And uh, yeah, I didn't know exactly what um, it, business meant. I, I got a job at a bank in my last year of high school and then first few years of um, university. I ended up, uh, I can get into the story a little bit more uh, in detail later, but uh, yeah, I thought I'd be in business. But uh, a couple a couple years after university, I was I was full-time performing. Now, you said you never saw a juggler. Then what inspired you to learn? Just something you knew about juggling, but why the desire to actually try it? Well, as a younger, as a, as a boy, I was, um, I had an artistic side of me. For one thing, I drew. I was a drawer. And uh, I also had a, a comedy, weird sense of humor side. I liked Weird Al. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a dramatic side, in a sense, uh, there. And so uh, I actually had an interest first in both ventriloquism and magic. But again, being out in the country, no, that's, this was pre-internet too. So all I could do was go to the library. So I actually remember I actually got a book on ventriloquism and a book on magic 
first, and they never really caught on. I, I mean, I, I, and I chalk it up to this. When you're doing ventriloquism, you can't really, I don't see there's an aha moment where you get it. You're like, I don't know, my my move my lips or not? I don't know. You don't really know if you got it. But when I started juggling, I actually didn't have a book. I just, one day I went down to the basement and I got three tennis balls. Or no, actually what the story was, was at school, uh, I had a spare came to class and I said to my friend, oh, what did you guys do? Oh, we watched a video. There was a, a movie and there was a juggler in it. And I said, wouldn't that be neat to know how to juggle? And he said, I could do it. I can juggle. No, you can't. And he picked up three, ch- three chalk brushes and showed me. He had, he had taught himself with acorns apparently walking to school. So then I went home that night and I got three tennis balls in the basement, the worst things you can learn to juggle with. But I said to myself, okay, I just analytically looked at it and I said, okay, I put one ball in my right hand and I held a second ball above it. And I said, okay, maybe if I drop it and pop the other one out. And I kept dropping it and popping the other one out from the front. And then I started from there, basically learned two in my right hand, the kind of a forward motion like everybody does incorrectly. And then I kind of learned that in my left hand as best I could. And after about two and a half hours, I then started alternating and I had an aha, you know, the juggling aha moment. It's like, I can't believe it. Five catches, 10 catches, 20. I'm doing it. I couldn't believe it. After, you know, more than a couple hours down there, just it's just one of those moments where like, oh, I can't believe it. I, I, I'm actually doing it. So when I was 18 years old and all of a sudden I started, uh, I, I actually had to go to a county library, not our local town library to find a, bo- a book. And I got one and then started grabbing everything. I, I remember had some ringette rings. Uh, my sister made me my first juggling bean bags, she sewed them and I had soybeans inside them. And uh, I had a friend from church a year later makes my first two sets of clubs actually on a lathe out of cedar wood. They were crazy heavy, <laughs> but I had no uh, no other reference. And I actually made my first set of torches. I just said to myself, well, how can I, what could I possibly do? And I, I took a broomstick and cut it into three pieces, much to the chagrin of my dad. I drilled a hole in the end and then screwed in a six-inch bolt and then took old socks, cut them up, wrapped them around the end and put twist ties to hold them on, dipped them in kerosene and voila, I had it. But after a few minutes of juggling, the socks would start to fly off on fire in my face and it wasn't perfect, but it was enough to say, wow, look at this, I can juggle fire. And that was a, probably a year or two after I started the first juggle. It's not surprising that sort of magic and ventriloquism led you into juggling. I've always felt that the difference is that with magic and stuff like that, ventriloquism, you have to show someone else. And if there's no one else around, it's very difficult to find an audience. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I remember I had a trick when I was a kid. It was like a ring, and you could attach a cigarette to it. And then when you you straightened your fingers, the cigarette would disappear behind your hand. Hmm. And the first time you would show somebody, you're like, oh, my God, that's really amazing. But then you, you couldn't show them again. (laughs) <laughs> and then and just doing it by yourself wasn't much fun. So uh, I think juggling is something maybe people who are lonelier or have less people around them to show off to might gravitate towards. That's right. Yep. Now, why do you think you went from just the basic juggle to actually wanting more? Because a lot of people, once they learn to juggle, it's like, okay, I can juggle. That's enough. What do you think drew you to be to make your own clubs and to make your own torches? What was the impetus for that? I don't know if the word, this is the correct word, but there's a certain game gamification about juggling in that you can really measure success fairly easily. And if you enjoy it, you can get better day by day. And there's a sense of accomplishment there, right? So even just using the number of catches, you're like, wow, I can't believe 
yesterday I could only do 20, but today I was able to hit 40. I doubled it. Wow. So there's that aspect and that probably my personality, you know, was able to take to that. And uh, as far as trying other unique things, it just, I guess, uh, you know, it was kind of the bug where I caught it and uh, I could do it a little bit, the weird side of me, you know, kind of, I mentioned weird Al and Mm -hmm. it's a unique thing. There's one thing I, I try to be unique or I like to be unique. And one of the first, one of the hardest things when I was starting out as a juggling performer was to try and figure out how to be unique. And I, I mean, I resisted a, lo- a tall unicycle for years because like everybody had a tall unicycle. So I just stuck to the small one and came up with a unique routine with that and uh, in, in various other aspects. That was actually one of the hardest things starting out as a performer because there's only so many ways you can throw a ball in the air or do this or that. And eventually everybody finds their own way based on their own personality. Now you learned kind of late. You said you learned in high school where most maybe serious jugglers start a little bit younger age, and you went on to university, at what point did you start getting some work or decide that, oh, I can make this into a performance and actually ask for money? Yeah, good question. It was, um, you said correctly, I, lent, I earned at the end, uh, sorry, I learned at the end of high school. Uh-huh. And, and a good, it's a good note there that it's because I learned so late at age 18, 19, almost 19, that, uh, you know, I never achieved any massive or any big juggling competition achievements because I I really feel like you kind of need to start younger. I'm sure there's exceptions out there, but uh, then after high school, I did have a year of Bible college and then in and four years of McMaster University. And I started juggling clubs wherever I went, started one at the college, started one at the university. And uh, it was at university that Again, I had still not performed, well, maybe one or two little fun shows in college, the one year of college. But then by my second year of university, I went in a talent show and I won the talent show. It was just like I did like a five minute routine and I won a hundred bucks. I'm like, whoa, this is, (laughs) I couldn't believe it. And it was during my first or second year of university in uh, Hamilton, Ontario, they had a, a couple of festivals where they allowed busking. I didn't know anything about it. And I just have to go to the festival for fun. And I saw... David Castle, I now I know it was him, and uh, I saw him do a comedy juggling show. He gathered a crowd, and after about 45 minutes, passed the hat. And I, I could have sworn at the time he got 100 bucks. It could have been more. I don't know what it was, but it looked like a heck of a lot of money compared to the $8 an hour I was making. And I said to myself, I can't believe it. Someday that's going to be me. <laughs> so I actually was kind of – I was just so blown away about, quote, unquote, how much money you could make doing something fun that I really enjoyed to do that it really caught my attention. And so the following summer, when I was working as a teller at a bank, it took me about two weeks to bring home 600 bucks, but they let me into the festival to busk. And I was just totally brand new, starting out, kind of doing the type of thing where I saw the other people do, gather a crowd, do a routine and and, and pass a hat. So I worked my, my tail off over two days, maybe did eight or nine shows a day for two days. And I came into the bank to work on Monday morning and dropped down a bag of uh, $600 in money. And uh, I've made in two days doing what was fun, what it took me two weeks to make. And I said, next year, I'm going full time. Of course, little did I realize you can't perform every day. <laughs> sure, sure. Now you were on this certain path and it sounds like you were sort of going towards a, you know, a business career. Now, when you tell your parents like, no, I've changed my mind. I want to be a juggler. How, how does the moment like that go over? Yeah, a lot of skepticism there. I actually went full-time for two summers as a summer job. I did performing full-time before I graduated university. 
and they saw that I did pretty well on the basically busking festivals and fairs and festivals as a summer job, probably better than any other job I had ever had as a summer job. So they did see that I could make the money. The proof is in the pudding. Sure. And I remember at one point there was, I did some festival and I came home and there was just like, I had a massive bag of all this money to be counted and rolled. And, and I think we counted it out and I don't know, it was several hundred dollars for one day or something like that. I don't know, but they, they were just flabbergasted as farmers, right? They were used to working, working their tails off. And it was kind of an aha moment there, but uh, in general, they basically just saw, you know, whatever I put my mind to, they saw I was succeeding at and they were pretty supportive. I, I don't know. I'd have to go back and really ask them. I, I don't really recall them discouraging me, if that's the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I said, the proof was in the pudding. You already were making money, so, they, so you weren't starting from zero. They weren't like, oh, he's never done this. Now he wants to try it. It's like, oh, that kind of makes sense seeing the amount of money he's making. Yeah. Now, is the farm still there? Do you go back and visit? Do you ever go back to see the pigs? <laughs> well, my farm, my parents are still there on the farm. Uh, they retired from farming uh, maybe 12 years ago. So it's, it's all still there. But yep, we still go back and uh, enjoy the the land and farmstead, so to speak. Now, I've never heard of David Castle. Is he still working? Is he? Did he have a sort of a long career? Or is he just someone who sort of came and went? Uh, no, he is still out there. He has a stage name. I believe it's Hacha Schmarzinski. Uh, I don't know if he still goes by that, but I think he is still performing. Hacha Schmarzinski? So, something like that. I think it's Hacha Schmarzinski. Oh, but uh, I've been, uh, yeah, I kind of uh, have been out of the uh, street performing area of work since 2000-ish, basically. So... So what happened was, uh, to extend the story, I finished university and all my friends are applying to Nortel and, and companies. I'm like, I don't want to get a job. I, I'm having too much fun. <laughs> but I didn't think about I could go full time yet. And so I actually spent um, eight months working in Lithuania doing some volunteer missionary work with uh, an organization over there. And I, I, I juggled and performed a little bit. And when I came back from that, I basically decided, OK, I've, I've done it full time for two or three summers it's time to go full-time all, all year long. Uh, and that was in 95, 95, yeah. And I think the first two winters, I had to have a part-time job to make it through the winter because I was starting out doing fairs festivals and busking festivals, and uh, winter hits pretty hard. January comes, and it's like, oh, I guess i got nothing for four or five months. How am I going to eat? And so I had a few part-time jobs the first few years full-time, but by about the third year, it was uh, it was rolling in. So the first five years of my career, yeah, fairs, festivals, busking fests, and uh, I started to slowly discover I could perform uh, at uh, church and uh, ministry type organizations as well. So that became a a part of my repertoire. I guess a lot of beginning jugglers don't realize how much of your work is going to take place outdoors. So when they practice in the gym and they're working on their routines, all of a sudden they're put out in the elements. They don't go, oh, I see. Now it's windy and sunny and, and it's hard to, to catch things sometimes and the conditions are rough. So working outdoors to start and then moving indoors, do you think that sort of gives you an advantage, kind of toughens you up? Yes. You, you make a good point about that toughens you up business because if somebody asked me today, came up to me and said, okay, let's say they were, I don't know, 20 years old and starting out and, you know, where would you start performing? You know what? I honestly say, you know what? Start street performing because it's so hard. Uh, I'm very introverted and fairly quiet and shy. And uh, how's that 
work for a performer, right? Well, I started street performing. I never did true or pure street performing where it's like, I just find a place. It was always official busking fest. We actually had had and have a lot of big organized busking festivals here, but still it's hard. And so as an introverted shy guy, trying to get learn how to get a crowd, keep a crowd and then get them to pay you well outdoors in the wind with noise, with competition, it's a really, it's like throwing you into the deep end. It, it just, in a sense, gets easier from there in many ways. I like working Canadian busker festivals. I like the fact that you guys have different colored money. <laughs> yeah. Like the different yeah. different bills has different colors. So as you're collecting, you can kind of get a sense of, of the denomination of the bills. Yeah, for sure. Now, did you ever work Edmonton? That's one of my favorite ones up there. Yeah, I did Edmonton in 96 and have good memories of that. Yeah, it's a good one. It's like about 10 days long, I think. Yep. And uh, I remember seeing you guys uh, in probably mid-90s, somewhere in Halifax as well. Yeah, we did the Halifax Busker Festival twice. That takes place in, in Halifax right there on the shore. And it's uh, they must have at least nine or ten different pitches. It used to be quite big. I think they've shortened it. But that one also used to be about uh, a week or ten days as well. Did you work? Did you work that one as well, Halifax? Yeah, I think at one time or another, I did all the major busking fests in Canada, and I did yeah. So I did Halifax and Edmonton and um, lots in Ontario, a few others here and there. Now, I want to go back a little bit. You said you did ministry work in Lithuania. How does one choose the location? Is it something that's given to you, or do you have options for different places to go? How did you end up in Lithuania? Well, in that scenario, in university, I was part of something called IVCF, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, just as a club. And my last, or in between my third and fourth year, they were looking for, they were putting together a one-month uh, short-term missions trip. So I went and went with a bunch of people. And then uh, as the uh, university years were ending, I heard that uh, they were looking for staff workers for the uh, the club at uh, Vilnius, that was communism, had fallen a few years earlier, and now they were love, had a bit of freedom of religion, so to speak, and I didn't want to get a real job, and I didn't think I could go full-time quite yet performing, so I said, you know what, this sounds like a good opportunity, and felt like the Lord was leading me there, and so, yeah, ended up going, because I already had the one-month exposure, it just kind of was a natural fit. Now, were there any Lithuanian jugglers you met, or were you kind of a novelty out there? The only other performer I met, I actually saw a street performer somewhere and uh, I actually don't think he was from Lithuania I think it was from European area he, he was just traveling through town so for the most part it was just me so when do you start calling your show comedy in motion and do you think that's a better sales tag than somehow saying you know Bob Kate's juggler do you think the idea of not having juggling in your promotional material helps you as seeing more versatile yeah I might uh, you know I'm tempted to say unfortunately that may be true it was mid-90s, I think, um, fairly early, right away when I went full, uh, full-time. And I think what happened was uh, there was a busking act called Variety in Motion. And I just thought, oh, that's a cool name. And I thought, oh, what about Comedy in Motion? And it was uh, free. And so I got the web domain and uh, and went from there. Was that Mardine and Ricky? Was that a husband and wife team? Yeah, I think that, that rings a bell. I think so. Yeah, I remember because they were back around that, that time and they were doing a lot of festivals. I remember that name as well. Variety in motion. Yeah, you see a lot of like stunt performer or action comedy. The idea of uh, comedy juggler, even though that's what most of us do, for some reason it's not really that great as far as a sales tool, unfortunately, like you said. Yeah. So you start doing it full time. 
you start doing these fairs and festivals and uh, the ministry work. What when it led you into cruise ship? When did your cruise ship's career start? Uh, it was the year 2000, and that changed everything for me. So I'd been full time for five years, like I mentioned, doing mostly um, probably 80 percent fairs, festivals, busking fests, some private events, and about 20 percent church events. And I had heard about cruise ships and looked at trying to get in. And, the very first cruise I ever did, it's still the most exotic location to this day. I got in on some weird sh- uh, short-lived cruise line, and it t- went from the southern tip of South America to Easter Island. Oh. We got stuck there overnight and uh, to um, Bora Bora and Pitcairn Island. That's where the mutiny on the bounty ship ended. And then I think I, yeah, I got off in Bora Bora, but I've never been back to any of those places. But anyways, that that started um, my foot in the door to cruise ships, and uh then I got on with uh, a proper cruise ship agent, and uh, I started uh, going. Sorry, and I really started. I did a Disney after the one I just mentioned, but then really it didn't uh, catch for me until Holland America, the fall of 2000, and uh, it was just a perfect fit for me because older crowds looking for something very clean, and my style is um, boy next door, talky, uh, witty, funny, charming type thing. Like I'm not really an edgy crazy zany type performer and so it it was a really good fit and i like them and so i started doing uh maybe 12 to 16 weeks a year which is low compared to what a lot of guys uh, do but i still had a fair amount of work on land that i was basically combining with but what happened was i started seeing all these other acts mostly magicians some ventriloquists but particularly magicians and i noticed the production value that they would have and Oh, they'd be doing costume changes with even just jackets and their lighting and the sound music, of course, and stage blocking and how do you get from here to there and their assistant. And it really inspired me to go, oh, man, I got to step this up a bit. Um, I already was using music in the show, of course, but I had never really worked with uh, lighting because I never had a long run on professional theater stages. And so... I had once said at one time, I would never wear a jacket because it's so restricting to juggle in. But uh, now I, I actually start the show in a full jacket and, and I actually have to wear a full uh, tie and vest and all that because it's part it's an intricate part of one of the routines I do. Now, uh, yeah, because people don't realize that the cruise ships have quite nice theaters. Did you had access to this different lighting or did you have to bring it in yourself? Uh, no, I, it uh, was pretty much all there. And uh, I started just kind of learn as you as I went you know I can actually would really basically take an hour and a half for lighting a rehearsal and then an hour for standard rehearsal and I'd work at okay well what can I do with this routine and what can you show me and a great deal of it depends on the talent of the lighting guy on board some guys are just like oh take a look at this and they have good ideas and other guys you know maybe you get on board and he's it's his first week too and he doesn't know what he's doing and so it's kind of hit or miss in some sense but you can generally uh, make things look way better by putting in different lighting cues and uh, things like that and you also use video in your in your act can you tell us how video is incorporated into your show you know what it's come and gone here and there over the years i actually don't do too much at all right now because I, it takes so long to set up other various aspects of the show. But one thing I did a fair amount in the past and occasionally pull it out for fun is uh, I built something called, I called it the juggler cam. I even used that name in the show. And this was before GoPros for sure. And it was a little camera that had an AM transmitter. I think it was AM. It was some weird frequency. I attached it to a pair of glasses and I called it the juggler cam. And I came up with a routine where the audience could see 
what five balls looks like from the juggler's perspective. And then I put some comedy to that. And the coolest thing I ever did was on these cruise ships, there was a couple of ships uh, or several ships in the class Holland America that I did where the balcony had a two foot ledge in front of the glass all the way around. And I still can't believe I was never told I couldn't do it. I just basically decided to try it one day and started putting the show. And what I did was while I had the juggling cam on, I would start juggling. I, I wanted to do it with four balls because I thought I got to make it a challenge. But in the end, as it is so true in so many ways with juggling, three balls was perfectly fine and perfectly entertaining and was a bit safer. So I would just start juggling and I'd walk up the far side stairs and, and go up to the balcony right in front of the people. And I step over the glass barrier while juggling and the people under the balcony could see on the video screen. So I'm looking around at the audience and making jokes and all with a James Bond music playing. And I'm, I'm walking carefully while juggling in front of the audience on the balcony ledge. And then I'd step over in front of the sound man and look at him. And then I'd continue around the balcony, climb back over the glass, come back on stage. And there was a couple of points where I go out of sight and I'd have pictures on the wall with funny sayings, your ad here and clap now and things like that. And then I'd get back on stage and it was a killer routine, but you can only do it on those ships with the balcony. And yeah, that sounds like quite a bit of a, of a setup and production and very, very unique situation that has to take place for you to be able to do it. Yeah, I, I tried it a few other locations. You know, maybe I'm at a, a church with a video screen or whatever. And you can't do the walking the balcony, but I would do, you know, I'd walk down the stairs or, or whatever. And uh, yeah, and so that that's one example. And sometimes I have pre-show video or a pre-show slideshow. Other times, I guess uh, another thing was a unique routine I did was Dance Dance Revolution while juggling. Have you ever heard of that video game? Yeah, yeah, where they have the music playing and there's something on the floor that lights up and your feet have to kind of match up with what's lighting up on the floor. That's right. Yeah. So in the mid nineties, I started doing it for fun just as a video game. Hey, this is cool. And I got better. And, you know, again, the gamifying things, it was um, good exercise and I liked it and like juggling with practice, you get better and better. And eventually I found I could do it at the hardest level. And it looks crazy when you're doing it at the hardest level. And then I thought, I wonder if I can juggle while I can do this. And sure enough, I could juggle clubs or even knives while I did it on the highest level. So I thought, okay, how am I going to put this in the show? And so I came up with a way to, it took me a while to kind of figure out how to present it. I found a way to present it with, uh, I started with the volunteer, do a very short demo with the volunteer and I'm dancing beside them and give them a trophy. And then I basically finish well on the hardest song and the hardest level while juggling clubs, or sometimes I do it with knives if I was feeling uh, like taking it over the top. Right. So you had like a competition. Yeah, and that, again, works with video as well. But it's a lot to set up just for that one six-minute routine or whatever it is because I got to have – now I got to bring a, a PlayStation, a, a video screen monitor for myself on the floor in front of me, and then we got to split the video up to the house screen. Or in my case, I would often travel with my own separate projector and screen. And then you got to send the sound to the soundboard. So, I mean, I'm here I've got a projector, a screen, another TV, a huge dance revolution, a PlayStation, <laughs> all just for one routine. But uh, all for the sake of being unique, and I, I did it for quite a while. Now, could you do that facing the audience? Because I think, don't you have to face the screen when you do the dance dance revolution? Yeah, good point. Uh, that's why I brought the second screen on the floor so I could face the audience. I wanted them to be able to see the, the screen with the game and me in their same view. So I would kind of stand under or almost in front of the screen. So when there's, they don't have to look away from seeing everything together. But of course, that means I got to face the audience. I guess I wouldn't have to face the audience, but I did just because if I'm juggling, I want them to see it. So 
That sounds that sounds like the way to go because, like I said, if you had your back to the audience and they couldn't really see what you see as far as your face and all the the different ways to perform, it, w- it would be a great routine, but had that limitation of not being that connection right between you and the audience. Yep, that's right. That sounds like a lot of stuff. You were very interested in being novel, but at a certain time, you must develop quite a bit of skill too because. Uh, you won the Canadian Juggling Championships. I didn't realize they had a its own championship. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I write in my promo. Uh, basically, uh, the year I won, they discontinued it forever. So it's, oh. a, it's a good thing I did. But I think it was 1994. So Robin Chestnut won two years before that. And uh, Flying Bob, I think the year before me, something like that. But mm-hmm. it basically, I, I believe it was the Winnipeg Juggling Festival. And they were really the only ones in Canada doing a competition. So nobody basically objected to the phrase uh, comedy Canadian juggling championships. And I think Robin won one year. And uh, so basically we use that in our promo. Well, it sounds good. You know, I mean, that's the idea is I remember one time me and Barry won a small talent contest at a college and somehow it became the intercollegiate college championships. <laughs> nice. It's salesmanship, salesmanship. <laughs> did you ever get out to Tonga on any of your uh, cruise ship adventures? No, I never did hit that hit that island. That's probably the most exotic place me and Barry went. I guess they call that, or used to call it the juggling island, because all the women would juggle with the with the nuts and or these fruits that were on the trees, and but they'd always juggle in a shower pattern. Interesting. Yeah, the one thing I remember about Tonga was when we were leaving, the airport was very rural, very small. And there were these loud sirens and we're like, what's going on? They go, oh, we need to use those to keep the animals off the, off the runway. Oh, I thought, boy, we've really made it in show business now. <laughs> yeah. You so said it did like 250 weeks on the ships. Any other ships uh, trips stand out as being particularly novel or anything happened that really stands out in your memory on these ships? Oh, well, that 250 weeks is spread over 15, <laughs> 15 years. Only once did I almost miss a ship, and it was when we were, the ship was in China, if you can believe oh. it. And my, this was when my wife was performing, too, with me. And she, uh, for weeks, we'd be getting off the ship, and it was all aboard at 5 o'clock. So we got off, and uh, that particular day, I, I didn't check the all aboard sign, and I just kind of assumed it's the same as every other day, but it was 4 o'clock. So oh. here, <laughs> Jane and I come moseying back and down the, the deserted dock at about 4.45, 45 minutes after all aboard, and... All of a sudden, the officer from the front, uh, the bridge outside, yells to us, move it, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And we're just like, oh, no. So we start running, and uh, we get to the ship, and I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, what is going on? We must have got the wrong time. And we just got reamed out right at the uh, gangway by the security officer and escorted to the bridge, said, you're coming with me. The captain wants to talk to you. So we're going up there, and uh, we get up to the the bridge and uh, the captain reams me out and I I was humble. I said, listen, I've done X number of hundred cruises and I've never, I've never missed this. It was an honest mistake. And uh, it basically just apologized profusely because we just mixed it up the time. And uh, I think we got, we didn't have any consequences. I think uh, the more frustrating thing was for perhaps, uh, I don't know, the captain of the security officer who didn't see us get punished. It's a bit weird because when you're a guest entertainer, you have passenger status, but you're not a passenger and you're not a crew either. So you're often in this weird in-between world, which is at our, at, to your advantage. So, I mean, sure, they could have thrown me off the ship and punished me or whatever, but 
I'm sure if I were a crew member, it would have been uh, much worse for us. But that was, yeah, we did almost miss the ship, and that was really embarrassing. So I'm pretty careful now. I take a picture of the uh, all aboard time, but I don't do uh, too many cruises anymore, maybe four weeks a year, which is enough to, uh, you know, get away from the winter here and there. Now, you met your wife through a, a show. Can you tell us how you met and, and what her position was that she uh, was involved with the juggler? Sure, yeah. So our paths crossed before we actually got together. And what happened was uh, in early 2000s, she hired me for a show. She was the director of uh, children's ministry at a large church in Ontario here. And they were doing some sort of family day and uh, knew of me. And so she hired me, brought me in, introduced me and did the show. And we were both single. I'm shy. I'm not going to be like, okay, thanks for hiring me. By the way, are you single? <laughs> so, you know, I just uh, kind of left it as is. And uh, two years later, our paths crossed at another event. She was taking part in a drama uh, at another ministry event, and I was uh, performing and just kind of a high buy backstage. And then uh, it was finally two years after that that we actually got together online. And uh, I found her uh, online on a uh, Christian singles website. And I said, I didn't know it was her, though. I couldn't recognize her. She had changed her look completely, but she recognized me. So, she strung me along for a few emails and then finally said, wait a minute, I know a Jane who lives in this city. And are you this, are you this Jane? And yeah, that's me. So uh, we pretty much uh, got into real life within a week and had a real date and uh, discovered we were perfect for each other. And she has a, a wacky, outgoing personality. She's fantastic. She's an upfront type person. At that point, I had been doing, when we met in 11 years ago, I had been doing, as I said, I don't know, something like, 15 weeks a year on cruise ships. And I had booked at that time a really cool uh, winter with three different one-month cruises to Australia, New Zealand, and Asia. And I had always said, you know what, it's going to be nearly impossible to find a woman who wants to join the business. But I had always dreamed of that because out on out at sea, especially, I'd see so many guys that would, uh, you know, be out there alone for weeks on end and, you know, it'd be quite lonely being away from home. So I thought, wouldn't it be neat to find someone who could join the business? And I knew it would be pretty much a long shot. She was willing to do it. And I was making enough money at the time. I didn't, we didn't need to, we didn't have to have two different incomes. And she's like, yeah, let's do it. And I'll come to, you know, to Asia and all this, and uh, I'll join the business. So we, it kind of is like a, a magician with an assistant. So I'm the star because if you're in your mid thirties, you're not going to become a professional juggler. Really, it doesn't matter who you are, even. But she was willing to, uh, in a sense, being from an up, go from being an upfront person uh, to being a, a backstage type person. Now she she comes on and off the stage several times during the show. In most situations, we set up the stage. Uh, she runs the the tech, sound, light, smoker, hazer, lasers, and various other things, remote controls from the stage left or right. But she, when we try to have it in a situation where she's visible, because the very first time she comes on and takes my coat and then she speaks for about a minute welcoming the audience. Cause I always thought if you're going to have an assistant on stage, I personally like the audience to hear from them to first. I sometimes, or quite often would see magicians who have female assistants, but they never speak or they might acknowledge them. Right. So anyway, she, she's quite happy to say a few words and then that establishes her, you know, as an identity in the show. And then we've been working a lot over the last two or three years trying to have her, comment on some things during the show again it's never like you and barry you're both on stage your constant patter it's never like that but i'll often tell a joke and maybe if it was a groaner i'll turn to her and say a joke to her so i don't know maybe like a paul schaefer type situation 
yeah, she joined the show and uh, it's been wonderful to be able to travel uh, together. And uh, she's given up a lot in a sense from her career. But we as a couple and really as a marriage have been blessed because we've been all over the place uh, together. Now, you also have a son. You have a nine year old. Did he also get into the act or did you travel with him? How'd that work out? Yeah, so up until about age five, we did, I, I think, what uh, a lot of people would do, kind of the uh, the forest, hey, you're going to learn how to uh, juggle or do this. or So yeah. he, he actually learned how to do a little poi and a little Diablo. I did a juggling trick, kind of the standard where I'm juggling two balls and a baby, a kid type mm-hmm. of thing here and there. So you're back and forth from yeah, like under your arm kind of deal? Exactly. So we did things like that. Maybe the, the token carry on, here's a cute baby and we do something mm-hmm. funny. But he got to the point where about, uh, so four years ago, he was age five. He actually did a three minute spot on the stage by himself. We built up to it where he did about one minute of, of jokes, one minute of Diablo and one minute of and juggling balls. Then he promptly retired from show business after that. I <laughs> never wanted to do it again. So you make like a pronouncement like, I'm done, call my agent. Yeah, pretty much. He's at the point now, though, where he's actually quite helpful in setting up and taking down. So he's he's old enough that he can lo- help load in, load out, set up, tear down, which is uh, a fairly big process for us. So uh, we homeschool, and uh, that's been a blessing as well. Jane, actually, before she was... Um, a director of children's ministry at a church. She was actually a teacher for a number of years. So we have that. She has that great uh, skill and does a great job as a homeschool teacher as well as a business partner. Yeah, your show always has a lot of production. Can you tell me about your, your big finale, your 24 plate spinning routine, and how much production does that take? Yeah, it's a, a bit of a rigmarole setup, and it takes a lot of space and, uh, you know, the uh, setup and takedown, but it's it's totally worth it. I, I've really enjoyed having that as part of my show. Plate spinning is a something that, thankfully for me, it's not that popular. It's kind of unique and using real plates and real dinner plates. It's, I think I started, you know, well, like anyone, you start with a few and you keep, you add another few more and a few more and a few more. And I've smashed hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of plates over the years. As a matter of fact, the most ridiculous thing I have to do is travel with 28 or or so real dinner plates. Like, I mean, fly with real dinner mm-hmm. plates that many. It takes up way too much weight. That has been a, a de- developing thing over the years. I've changed the design of my system, how it's built on stage to so that it can travel lighter and things like that and come up with a design now that I'm pretty pretty proud of how small I can, can make it. But yeah, so it, it fills, I build it and Jane brings them on. And uh, by the time it's done, you've got 25 feet across of all these plates spinning six feet in the air. It just really feels big which is not something that's always easy for a juggler to do. Well, I guess you get the height, the height with the juggling, but as far as props on stage, it's not you never like have like a giant illusion like some illusionists do, but mm-hmm. but this can uh, yeah, so it's it's always been a good finisher. Also because I often try and I break one plate on purpose and sometimes I break a few accidentally <laughs> as well. Now, that's not what you did though at the RIT Juggling Festival because one of the things you've won, we'll talk about your awards now, is in addition to winning uh the Canadian Juggling Championships, you're also named the Entertainer of the Year uh, for the Canadian Event Industry Awards. Is that something you tried to do quite a few years and then within one? How does someone get nominated for an award like that, the Canadian Entertainer of the Year? Yeah, so the Canadian Event Industry Awards, I knew very early on that I would never win anything prestigious as a juggler, technically, but also as a business, small business owner in in like show business, very much business. I realized, you know what, winning anything juggling is not going to help me get shows or get business, really, the type of shows that I want to get. So 
I started wondering, you know, what other organizations are there where they're in the industry I'm working in, and that would actually be helpful to the career. And so the Canadian Event Industry Awards, it's basically a corporate event association, and they award everything from best special event decor to best, there's 50 different categories. And one of them is uh, entertainer of the year, best entertainer of the year. And so I was nominated four years previously to winning and then finally won in 16. And uh, basically uh, it's based on, uh, we have to submit uh, letters of recommendation, testimonials, uh, video of the act, reviews, audience reaction, et cetera, et cetera. And they they look at everything and, and go from there. Uh, Bob, in addition to the uh, Entertainer of the Year, are there any other Canadian awards you've won that you're proud of? Yes. Um, last year, actually, 2018, I just uh, won Best Variety Act at the uh, Canadian Comedy Awards. Oh. Yeah, so that uh, actually I was nominated for that twice in the past, and I was also nominated for Best One Man Show at the Canadian Comedy Awards, but I actually won Best Variety Act last year, and it meant a lot to me because... Canada's known for comedy, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, to have that award under the belt, uh, you know, hopefully it uh, can add a bit of credibility and maybe if, make a, a few sales as well. And did you compete against magicians and ventriloquists? In the year I won, I think there was magicians, some variety acts, actors, musical comedy acts, and even some uh, evil clowns, I think. Okay. <laughs> so, it, uh, yeah, so best variety, it could be anything. So I guess the, the variety and the, the magicians, the, the ventriloquists, you're choosing juggling was their loss and our gain. <laughs> yeah. You ended up beating them all. Yeah, that's right. So I was very happy to win. I'll just say that. And that was 2018. Are you going to try to go back to back or can people win more than one year in a row? I think you could. I was going to take off uh, this year after the win. I wasn't going to uh, sure. pursue give, it. Give the other people a chance. Yeah, that's right. Well, cool. And what was the trick you did to win the RIT most difficult trick at the Juggling Festival in our, in uh, New York? Yeah, it was uh, two Diablos, and I threw one up high, and I threw the second one high to the side a bit, and then I ran and did it. I whip catched the first one from behind between my legs from behind, mm-hmm. and then caught the falling second one back into the two Diablo pattern. Yeah, I remember Diablo being one of your specialties. What other types of juggling do you have in your show? What are the types of juggling? Um, uh-huh. I've got uh, balls, rings. Uh, I only do a short amount with clubs. Uh, earlier in my career, I used to do a, a short two-minute club routine, but I don't anymore. I, that's something I wish I was better at. Uh, I, I see some people do just beautiful club routines. And like I can do a Diablo routine that looks beautiful, like you know, put the effort into the movement and stuff like that. But I never really was able to hone a, a beautiful-looking club routine. Let's see, cigar boxes and cigar box balance. Uh, there's another actually fairly new, less than two-year-old act I've put into the show after years of thinking about it, and that is I have uh, a table balanced on my face. It took me a long time to find a light enough table and a way to mount the table onto another apparatus that balances on my chin. So the table gets lifted mm. up on top of the table, is a tablecloth with two uh, real dinner plates, a vase with flowers, and uh, the crescendo is I, I reach up and uh, I do the old tablecloth pull while it's balanced on my face. Uh, so that's something uh, I basically built. And of course, Diablo, I mentioned, the plate spinning, uh, the Dance Dance Revolution, uh, the video camera stuff. I did and do a little bit of magic with my wife. We do have one, I guess it would fall under the, the um, category of illusion. We created... 
Uh, it's called the spirit curtain, magicians would call it, but we create mm-hmm. a, juggling, a juggling version of the spirit curtain where Jane gets tied up. I, I raise the curtain and all of a sudden things are juggled out the top of the curtain. It stops and I, I drop the curtain and you can still see her tied up. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's, she's hidden behind this, the curtain and it appears like she cannot possibly juggle. She's so tied up, but you see the objects flying around and you reveal she's still tied up. Exactly. And then the, there's another segment. I haven't performed very much recently, but I've dabbled in it on and off and it always gets a good reaction. But And it's a super memory and it's not a trick it's an actual skill that uh, i worked for a long time beginning five years ago to develop and there was two directions i went with it one which i never did perform the other i did perform the one category i was working on was speed memorizing a deck of cards and i got to the point after and again like like juggling like dance dance revolution it's a skill that well you simply practice it every day and wow you're going to get better and it seemed to me absolutely impossible to ever be able to memorize a deck of cards in any amount of time, let alone fast. But after much, much practice, I got to the point where I could memorize a deck of cards. The fastest I ever did was five minutes. It took me five minutes to memorize it and five minutes to recall it. And that's 52 cards. And yeah, I never, that's not fast enough to perform. And, but I did, you know what? I shouldn't say I never performed it. I did a few, sometimes I did a free shows for organizations here and there. They weren't, quote unquote, important shows and I wasn't getting paid. So I threw in a few versions of it. So I thought, oh, maybe if I only memorized half the deck or things like that. But the other direction that uh, did work and I don't do it as much anymore. I don't know why, but you have so much material and I got everybody has their A show that they love to do that they know will kill. But it is this and that is I can memorize a list of 100 items up to 100 items given to me randomly in order, forwards, backwards and randomly. And while I could do it with 100, I basically perform up to a 30 because again there's the speed factor of how long it takes to literally so i'll I'll basically say to the audience okay uh, uh give me a word and i'll say okay i'll just point okay boom and i'll start writing down in a list and i'll get a volunteer on front of a whiteboard to write the list on the whiteboard and usually 30 is a good number after three minutes or whatever four three four minutes i've got a list of these items that she has written and then uh, basically, she has a one of these desk bells, ding, ding, and I'll turn mm-hmm. away and I'll say, okay, here we go. And I'll, I'll recite the list forwards and then I'll recite it backwards. And there's a bit of comedy there because she's dinging the bell wrong and their spelling's sometimes bad or whatever. And, and then I'll do a few of them randomly or whatever. Yeah, so that was something that I added that's not magic, not juggling, but it, it has to really not just capture my attention. It has to impress. I have to impress myself to really put mm-hmm. it in the show. So I'm not the type of guy who... Somebody says, how long are you going to do this? Oh, I, I, I can see myself doing it longer in my one magician friend. Why don't you just put magic in the show? I'm like, yeah, it's just not my personality to just go out and buy a trick and do it. I, I had to really impress myself. So that's, in a sense, a bit of a downfall. But on the other hand, hopefully it keeps the show interesting. Now, do you use like a pegging technique or a memory castle? What do you do as far as your, your technique and the memorization? Yeah, uh, it's different techniques and different combinations for the two different Mm -hmm. things I just mentioned to you. And uh, so, yeah, for the one with the list, it is uh, a combination of different techniques. Yeah. Uh, Memory castle and uh, pegging and things like that. Yeah. I studied a little bit with Brad Zupp, who's also a juggler and a memory expert. It's uh, he he does pretty much a a memory show with a little bit of juggling. Yeah. I'd love to do, of course, the, uh, the the holy grail of memory is, is names and that's Mm -hmm. quite hard. And I saw a performer, once uh, he mingled for an hour, you know, during the cocktail hour or whatever. And then uh, 
open the show with, okay, if I talk to you and got your name during the show, stand up and a hundred people stand up. And then one by one, he said their names and they sat down and that was really impressive. This funny thing is my wife, she's naturally good with memory and names and I'm naturally bad, but, uh, uh, she's not really interested in the in that kind of performing. So I always thought, man, if you you have a natural talent for it, if you combine that with the, the uh, behind the scenes memory techniques, boom, she'd be a killer. But yeah, I like memorization myself. I think it's a very, but it, it's, it's strange how it's very particular. It's something that you have to focus on, like you say, these different subjects, names or words or playing cards, and then have those specific techniques for that particular type of memorization. Yeah, it, it is fascinating as as when you get into it. I had kind of an aha moment, just like juggling. I was at, I was in Edmonton doing a corporate show, and I stumbled in a bookshop and flipped open a book. And this book, there was one chapter on how to memorize a list of, I don't know if it was 10 or 20 things. I think it might have been even 10. It was something. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to do what they said. I closed the book, and then the next day or the, that night or so, sometime a fair chunk of time later, I thought, I wonder if I can remember that. I remembered the whole list in order, and I'm like, whoa, I, what? That little thing did that? And, and it was one aha moment where, wow, I, it just did it. And just like juggling, it kind of got my interest. Yeah, there's lots of books by Harry Lorraine. He's uh, one of the famous memory performers in some of the books I've studied. And it's interesting how you can take a skill that you really wouldn't think of as being something visual, like memorization, and turn it into a performance. Yeah, that's right. Now, speaking of performing... Have you appeared at many juggling festivals? I see you've been to the Israeli Juggling Festival. How was your experience there? Oh, yes, it was good. Uh, that was uh, a fair time ago in 2005. Um, I think I might have been allergic to olive trees or something because uh, I had some pretty bad allergies while I was there. I was on vacation uh, for about three weeks ending in Israel, and I had several months in advance uh, Googled, and whoa, I can't believe it. The Juggling Festival is on the, the week after I'm on vacation there, so I contacted them and they invited me to be a part of it and so performed while I was over there and, and really enjoyed my, my time there. It's just amazing jugglers, just absolutely amazing jugglers in Israel. And the site is fantastic. It's actually like at a, a big camping ground. Yes, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, I was lucky to be there, I think, five or six years ago. Did you go into the water and have the fish nibble your toes? Oh, I did go in, but I don't remember that happening. <laughs> oh, that was, that was one of my favorite things. They would sort of nibble the dead flesh at the at your, your toes, and you could be underneath the waterfall while the fish were nibbling your toes. Oh. And it was so hot there, it was really a relief to have that big water feature they have, the big lake and the waterfalls. Yeah. Beautiful area. Yep, that's neat. And speaking of festivals, I, I heard a rumor, and let me know if this is true or not, that you might be attending next year or this year in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, yes, indeed. David Kane uh, has got me performing at the Cascade of Stars, I believe. And uh, yep, we're all set for that. So. And do you know which routine you might be might be planning for us? Yeah, he's asked me to do the plate spinning routine. So. Fantastic. Like I said, that's very rare. So it'd be very exciting to see someone actually spin twenty four plates on stage. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been fun uh, being a part of the IJA over the years when I could go. As a matter of fact, the very first festival was very transformative as well for me. It was 92 Montreal, or was that 91? No, I think it was 92 in Montreal. And so I had been juggling for, oh, three and a half years and in university. And uh, I maybe had been to a few uh, Toronto juggling clubs, but... Man, I walked in and, you know, several hundred jugglers and your mind is blown. And in fact, I think that was the first time I really saw juggling performed as entertainment at the uh, 
you know, the renegade stage. And I just, you know, people would do funny routines and comedy. I'm just like, wow, you, you really can do a show with juggling. And so basically you go home and you either cry or practice. <laughs> Hopefully you practice. Well, it'd be great to see you. We've come to our, the end of our time together, Bob. But thanks for sharing so much of your career with us. And I look forward to seeing you in Indiana. Any kind of future events coming up uh, gig-wise that you're excited about? Well, there's nothing really, uh, I think, spectacular that would uh, would turn any heads besides just the you know the regular bread and butter stuff, putting uh, mm-hmm. putting food on the table, and uh, and that's about it for now. And how long do you see your your juggling career going? And do you have any plans for afterwards? You know what? Uh, I, I sometimes think uh, what I'm 48, maybe 55. You know, there's no reason I. Everybody asks me. I think well. I can't see not doing I can't see not physically being able to do it two years from now and then five years from now and whatever it is. It's something I don't have a plan to stop at any given time because despite the uh, the ups and downs of the industry and the business, there really is a lot of pleasure in uh, putting smiles on faces and and uh, and performing. So no plans to stop at this point. I'd have to really find something else that I was interested in to change. Well, that's good to hear, Bob. And I'm really glad you're also coming to Fort Wayne this year. And I look forward to seeing you again. It's been a long time. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. And it's been nice talking with you. My pleasure. And thanks again. Thank you, Bob. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 66. My conversation with Bob Cates. Thanks, Bob. Keep those plates a-spinning. And I'll see you this summer at the IJA Festival in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Still a member of the IJA well, then go to juggle.org and join this great group of jugglers. Still don't have a ring dama, my wooden skill toy? Then go to ringdama.com and order yourself one, and you'll be the coolest kid on the block, as long as your block is very, very short. All right, enough preamble at the end, whatever that's called. My name is Dan Holzman, and thank you so much. Don't forget, drop everything, except when you're juggling. <laughs>